0: All right, we are at the tail end of a story which we began back in Acts chapter three. You have Peter and John, and they go to the temple for prayer. They heal this lame beggar that was there. And then after the prayer time, they, they go to Solomon's colonnade, and they, they preach the gospel there. And a whole lot of people follow Jesus. I think 2,000 at that 2,000 came from that point there. They get arrested, they get taken before the Sanhedrin. And they're asked the question of, you know, who's, in whose name or whose power are you doing this? Or are you healing this man? And Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he responds, you know, it's in the name of Jesus, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead. And the leaders, they were astonished at Peter and John, because they, they, it specifically says they took note that they had been with Jesus. We talked about that a few weeks ago. But then they told them. Don't preach or teach in the name of Jesus anymore. They threaten them, and then they release them. Now, Peter and John, they return to the believers. We saw this. They pray. But their prayer was to speak God's word with great boldness. And they also ask God to stretch out his hand and heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of Jesus. And God answers that prayer right then and there. He shakes the place that they were in. Luke follows this up with a second look at unity within the church. There was one earlier that we looked at early on, but this is a second look yet. It shows how everybody's sharing everything with one another. Sometimes people are even selling property to help those who are in need. And we get two pictures of this. We get Barnabas, also uh, his names Joseph, but he was called Barnabas, which is son of encouragement. He's a Levite, he sells his property, and he gives the money to the church. And then we have a married couple that shows up, Ananias and Sapphira, who also sell property, but they lie about how much they sold it for and both die in the process. Great fear sees the whole church and everybody who heard about these events. That's where we left off last week. And so this week we're going to continue. We're going to kind of wrap up this story thread that we've been on, and we're going to look and see how God answered the prayer from before that we talked about. This time he's focusing on the signs and the wonders and the healing. And then we're going to see the apostles back boldly proclaiming God's word, where they run into some more opposition. And it's a little bit, well, actually, it's a lot more than before. So we're going to start in Acts chapter 5. We're going to be in verse 12. It says, "...the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people." And all the, all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. So we see the apostles, they're performing these signs and wonders. We're going to see what these are here in a second. But it says that all the believers are meeting together in Solomon's colonnade. In the same place where Peter and John were preaching and were arrested before it's in the temple complex. It's not in the temple itself, but in the complex, kind of around the edges of it. You'll see these colonnades if you remember the picture we showed up, uh, showed before. But they're meeting together. But it seems like this time it's just the believers, because it says nobody else dared to join them, even though they were highly regarded by all the people. They they didn't want to join them, and I wonder. I wonder if it's because the story of Ananias and Sapphira kind of got out, word got around. And now people might be a little bit more cautious about about coming in. But, but it doesn't matter how, why they weren't hanging out with them. They just, they were still highly regarded among non-Christian people. And hopefully it's because they saw how they were taking care of one another, following Jesus' commandment to love one another in, in the book of John, And he said, you know, Jesus said that's how his disciples or how people are going to know that they are his disciples, right? If they love one another, they take care of one another. We continue in verse 14 where it says, nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on them, on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. That's amazing. Even though people weren't hanging out with the believers at Solomon's Colonnade, the word was still being preached. People were still believing and following the Lord, being added to their number every day. They're still boldly proclaiming God's word. They're boldly proclaiming the gospel, the good news. And even in the face of this opposition that they, they kind of ran across, they did not stop preaching the good news. And then we see this healing being performed by the apostles. People were bringing their sick to them. Luke writes that they brought them out onto the streets. They laid them on beds and mats just in the hopes that Peter's shadow might fall fall over them and, and heal them. Now, there's a commentator that writes uh, named John Polhill that writes that in the ancient world, a person's shadow was subject of much superstition and was believed to represent his or her power and personality to literally be an extension of their person. So we're not told that anybody actually gets healed by Peter's shadow falling on them. But what this tells us is that there was a reputation that Peter had, that there was healing actually going on. This idea of the shadow, it does remind me of the story, though, of the woman who approached Jesus. And, you know, if she could just touch his cloak, she would be healed. People were coming from outside the towns, outside Jerusalem, from the towns around there, just to bring their sick or those who were being tormented by impure spirits they were bringing them to the apostles for healing and Luke reports that all of them were healed and what an amazing sight that would have been but not everybody thought it was amazing acts 5:17 then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the sadducees were filled with jealousy they arrested the apostles and put them in public in the public jail so again we got the high priest coming in and kind of ruining everything right Given, we're given the reminder that they were part of the Sadducees. And they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in other things like angels, which is going to be kind of fun later. Seems like they weren't real big on much of the supernatural. Um, but what they did was they put an emphasis on the scriptures. And so it's wild that I think even if you have an emphasis on the scriptures, that you can't have a belief in the supernatural or in angels or or spiritual things like resurrection. Maybe they skipped over all those parts like Elijah and Elisha. Or maybe it was just angels they didn't believe in which, who also appear. So they skipped over Daniel. But they come in, much like we saw with Peter and John before. They didn't like what they were seeing, they were hearing, and they had the apostles arrested and put in the public jail. But instead of just being Peter and John this time, we've now figure it's the whole, all 12 who are put in. That could seem pretty dire, right? Like, you're you're not thinking that you're going to go to jail, but in the very next verse, something amazing happens. Verse 19, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened up the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said. Tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. I personally love this, because it was the Sadducees who arrested them. They're the ones who didn't believe in angels, so God's like, okay, I'm going to send an angel to go rescue them. (laughs) And we're going to see this in a minute, but the, the angel does this in such a way that is really amazing. But it always just makes me think that God's got more of a sense of humor than we may give him credit for. So the angel comes, frees him, tells him to do what? He's like, go away, be free. you know. Definitely don't put yourself back in danger so I can come bail you out again. Well, No, he didn't say that. Of course not. He says, go back to the temple courts. Go back to where you just were and keep telling the people about this new life. And so daybreak comes. People are coming in for their prayer time and the morning prayer time. And there are the apostles ready with the gospel. Well, we continue in the second part of verse 21 where it says, when the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. So apparently, when the high priests come with their people, they they don't go them the same entrance as everybody else, so they don't see the apostles there, I guess. So they call together Sanhedrin, which is the authority over all the Jewish affairs in Israel. This is the same group that Peter and John appeared before, same group that tried Jesus. But they're ready to put the apostles under trial again. And so they go send them, send to the jail to bring them out. And they're going to have a pretty big surprise. Verse 22. But on arriving at the jail, the the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported. We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. And on hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. So they go to the jail. They don't find anybody there except the guards, which, of course not, because they're out preaching at Solomon's Colonnade. But here's where we get a more full picture of how this miraculous this escape was. You have the jail, and the doors are all securely locked. There are guards standing at the doors that had presumably been there all night, and the apostles are gone. The angel had come in. I don't know what he did with the guards. Maybe he put them to sleep or something, but he came in, freed the apostles, gave them the command to go teach, and locked everything back up all nice and neat. And the captain of the temple guard, who we met earlier when he arrested Peter and John, and the chief priests, they've got no idea, no clue what's going on. And they're kind of wondering what this is going to lead to. You know, Their security apparently isn't very good. So they're going to have to do something about that. But what happened to these guys? What happened to the apostles of Jesus? Where'd they go? Are they going to have to do a manhunt? Are they going to have to do like Tommy Lee Jones from The Fugitive? You know, go around be like, what I want from each and every one of you is a hard target search of every gas station, residence, warehouse, farmhouse, henhouse, outhouse, dockhouse in that area. Checkpoints go up at 15 miles. Is that what they're going to do? Like, that's got to be kind of the stuff that's going through their minds, right? But it turns out they don't really have to do all that much because the apostles didn't really go that far. Verse 25, someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain and his officers went and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. So they go and they arrest them again, but they don't use force. Because they're afraid of the people. And again, it's reminding us of before. Because when Peter and John healed the lame beggar, they let him go because they were afraid of the people. Because they didn't want, they they didn't do anything to them. And they're afraid of maybe an uprising. So now the apostles are going before the Sanhedrin. Verse 27. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Two charges, really, they're bringing against the apostles here. The first is they're disobeying what the Sanhedrin told them to do, commanded them not to do, really, which was not to teach in the name of Jesus. Although they don't even say Jesus' name here. They're just like, don't teach in that name. But they've been filling Jerusalem with their teaching. So apparently the news of the apostles' teaching had spread enough that the Sanhedrin had heard about it. But they know it's not just this group that meets in the temple complex of Solomon's colonnade either, though, if they've heard all that, because it's been growing, right? More and more people are following Jesus. The last count we had given to us was 5,000. And there's been more added. Now, the second charge is the Sanhedrin says the apostles are determined to make us, or them, guilty of this man's blood. We, yeah, we see that every time the gospel gets preached by whoever's preaching it. Usually Peter, what we've seen so far. But he's always saying something along the lines of this Jesus, whom you crucified, whom you killed, he was raised from the dead by God. Peter said it very directly to the Sanhedrin themselves at the last trial. You know, when asked, how did did this man, by whose power did you heal this man? What is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead? But he also lays the blame on the people for handing Jesus over to be killed. Tells him in Acts 3.17 that he knows, though, that they acted in ignorance as did their leaders. Nobody wants to be said that they're guilty of this man's blood, of his death. But then the apostles, they answer the Sanhedrin. Verse 29. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, it's probable that Peter it's Peter here that's doing the talking, and, and the others are kind of affirming him as he speaks. But he responds to them with the same boldness that he's had ever since the Holy Spirit came on him at Pentecost. He begins by saying, we've got to obey God rather than human beings. And... In fact, this is how he ended the last trial, right? Even though it wasn't quite that direct, but this time he's not pulling punches anymore. And then he continues, and he repeats the gospel message like he's been saying it the whole time. He said, God raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging on the cross. Now, literally what he says here is you killed him by hanging him on a tree. The word is a tree there for cross. And what that is, is is probably a reference back to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy twenty-one twenty-three, it says, "You must not leave the body hanging on the pole or tree overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day, because anyone who is hung on a pole or tree is under God's curse." The Apostle Paul references this passage as well in his letter to the Galatians, Galatians three thirteen. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole or tree. Anyway, they, they killed Jesus by hanging him on a cross or a tree. And God raised him from the dead and has exalted him to his right hand. And the apostles are still fulfilling Jesus' command to them from Acts chapter 1 to be his witnesses. Peter says they are his witnesses they are witnesses to these things and also the holy spirit is a witness to these events as well and god has given the spirit of god to anyone who obeys him and it's at this point that the sanhedrin's heard enough they would probably call this blasphemy because you're bringing the holy spirit in on this as well and none of that is good in their eyes verse 33 When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But something unexpected, I think I would say unexpected, happens here. Because a Pharisee speaks up in verse 34. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, men of Israel, Consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theudas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, Leave these men alone, let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Gamaliel was a Pharisee, one of the teachers of the law. According to the apostle Paul, later in the book of Acts, Paul studied under Gamaliel. What we see here is probably the most even-handed response so far. Gamaliel reminds the Sanhedrin of two uprisings with apparently pretty dynamic leaders, in Theodos and Judas the Galilean. Both acquired followers, one claimed to be somebody, the other led a revolt. Both killed and their followers scattered, and it led to nothing. And so in light of this, Gamaliel advises the Sanhedrin to let the apostles go. And here's the reason he gives. He says, if their are purposes of human origin, then it's going to fail. Ultimately, it's destined to fail. But if it's of God, you can't stop it. You'll only be fighting against the Lord. Author F.F. F. Bruce writes that this advice reflects sound pharisaic doctrine. He writes, they believe that men may disobey God, but his will would ultimately triumph Notwithstanding, the will of men was not fettered, but what they willed would be overruled by God for the accomplishment of his own purposes. Basically saying, you can't kill these guys, the apostles of Jesus, or, well, no, you can kill these guys, the apostles of Jesus, but if this is, if this is from God, it's not going to matter anyway. Whether you kill them or not, it's not really going to matter. There are more than 5,000 more people out there who are going to take it up and continue. And if God's not behind it, this might be a nice fad, but it's eventually going to die out. How did the Sanhedrin, though, respond to his advice? Well, in verse 40, it says his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So he persuaded them not to kill the apostles. However, they did have them flogged, which is still not great. Basically what that means is they would have taken repeated lashes from a whip or a rod. We don't know how many times they would have been struck, but it would not have been more than 40 because that was in the rules. Still, 40 times getting hit with lashes or a rod. Not something that I would recommend. So they are flogged, and then they are ordered again not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let go. And you got to kind of wonder, like, what's going to happen here? What will the apostles do? But we don't have to wait too long to get an answer. Verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Two things we see. First, they rejoiced in their suffering. Because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. They rejoiced. If that doesn't make sense, think about what Jesus went through. And if we don't think, I mean, Jesus himself said, like, if it happens to me, it's probably going to happen to you too. The second thing, though, they didn't stop. They kept going to the temple. They continued to teach and proclaim in temple courts and the houses the good news of Jesus Christ. And man, that's amazing. Amazing. Like the apostles before us, we need to continue to be bold in the face of opposition to continue preaching the gospel, to continue preaching the good news of Jesus. And not just me up here on Sunday mornings, But all of us as a church, that's going to look different for every single one of us, right? Not all of us are going to be preachers. Not all of us are called to do that and be able to stand up in front of a group and and teach the gospel. Most of us are going to do it through everyday conversations with people. But, you know, if we feel that we have the answer to eternal life that is found only in Jesus Christ, why would we keep that from anybody? I think we talked about this before, but you know Penn and Teller, right? The the magicians. Well, Penn Gillette, he's the tall guy, the talkative one. Although Teller, wonderful voice when you actually hear him talk. <laughs> um, both of them are atheists. They've made that fact very well known. But there's a video that, that Penn put out one time, and he talks about a man who approached him after a show. He said he was kind of standing off to the side, waiting... And he gave him a gift, and it was a Bible. One of those Gideon pocket Bibles that has the New Testament and the Psalms in it. And he told Penn up front, he's like, you know, I'm not crazy. I'm a sane man. I'm a businessman. But I just wanted to give you this, and I wanted to tell you about Jesus. And Penn's reaction, which you, you can watch it on YouTube. You just look up Penn, Gillette, and Bible, and you'll get it. It'll be the first video that pops up. His reaction has always struck me because he was very complimentary of the man. And he said this thing. He said, if you really truly believe there's a heaven and a hell, and that somebody who doesn't believe is going to hell, then you should try your best to convert them. You should he he always he uses the word proselytize, which that's all it means is to convert. And he says he doesn't respect people who believe something like this and don't try. Then he says the thing that really gets to you, he says, how much do you have to hate somebody not to try? To not tell them. If we feel we've got the answer to the question of what happens after death, we need to be telling people. We need to find the openings and the conversations that will allow it. And we're not doing it to bump up numbers or anything like that. We're not doing it to check something off. But it's because we genuinely care for people and we care for their lives. Because that's what the apostles did. They didn't stop. They didn't let the oppression, the danger stop them. Because they had the message. They had the good news. They had the gospel. Even though they were flogged, they rejoiced because they suffered disgrace for the name of Jesus. And then they kept going. And where we live, we don't have that level of persecution. There are places around the world that do. We don't really. I mean, we are able to freely meet here. We're able to talk to people about it. But even if we would, even if we do, even if it comes to that, we need to keep going. God's going to be with us all along the way. And we can rejoice, even in the bad times, because we know what's true. We know that God remains with us. Even if he doesn't relieve us from the suffering at that time we can still rejoice. David Livingstone Livingstone. He was a the pioneer missionary for Africa. Walked over 29,000 miles in his ministry. His wife died early on. He faced lots of opposition from his uh, fellow Scotsmen. But in his diary he wrote these words. It was prayer really. He said, send me anywhere, only go with me. Lay any burden on me, only sustain me. Sever me from any tie, but the tie that binds me to your service and to your heart. God has promised he will go with us. He will sustain us. Let us have the same mind as Dr. Livingston and go where the Lord leads, trusting that He will be with us and sustain us. And we continue to take the unyielding gospel to the world. Yesterday, I got to see um, what the power of one person, because a lot of times we think about that, right? We're like, well, what can I do? I'm just one person. Well, yesterday we saw a testament to that. Um, Austin's grandpa passed away uh, this past week. He was a pastor down in Bloomfield for over fifty years, I think, and the the little church antioch Christian church down there uh, was packed out a whole lot of people for there for there because he was he was well known in that community and well loved and um, Austin said greg did the did the funeral most or the, the main part of the funeral and you know, he talked about the impact that Arlen, Arlen Pope had on that community. And it was, for a pastor, it's, it's something to aspire to. Because he did, if I get the numbers right, it was over 800, um, 800 baptisms. And so Greg had everybody that had been baptized by Arlen to stand up that had come. Probably half the church, a little bit more than half the church stood up did about that many funerals. And so Greg was like, if, if you have anybody that has been, uh, had uh, Arlen do a family member's funeral, would you stand up? And another group of people stood up and then did over 300 weddings, which that seems like too many, but um, <laughs> I've done one. <laughs> but they're still going strong. <laughs> um, but he did over 300 weddings, and he's like, if you've been married by Arlen Pope, would you stand up? And I would say probably 90% of the church was standing at that point. Ninety There were probably 130, 150 people in there. I mean, it was packed. 90% of them were standing up. And it's just an amazing testament to what one man did for God's kingdom on this earth. Because he was just faithful in proclaiming the word and being a pastor and, and living life with people. Now, for a pastor, that's encouraging, for sure. It's where I, you know, at my funeral, that would be awesome. <laughs> um, we may not get to 300 weddings, though. but maybe, who knows? That'd be a lot of people. <laughs> um, but even for each and every one of us that are Christians... It should be an encouragement for us, too. Because we can have that same impact. It may not be quite as big, but maybe it will be. You never know how God is going to use you. But he will use you. And so, like the apostles, we just want to continue. Pray the same prayer they prayed to just be bold. To proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. And now's the best time to do it because it's Easter. It's like the easiest time when everybody's thinking about spiritual things. A funeral is oftentimes the second best time because people are thinking about death. It's like, well, hey, I've got the answer to that too. And it's always in Jesus. And so as we go from here, as we go, especially in this month, you know, take, take one of these cards, use this as an opening or just plant a seed somewhere because a lot of times that's what we do we plant a seed and then somebody else is going to water it somebody else is going to harvest it and that's okay because God will use us along the way and so i just pray that our yeah, that we all would pray to be used by God in such a way amen let me pray Father we are so thankful for your blessing and the the many amazing things you've done for us. But ultimately we are are in your debt because of the price that was paid for our freedom in your son Jesus. But the beautiful thing, Lord, is that you've told us that we don't owe you anything, that it was a gift. Lord, I pray that Maple Grove Christian Church, that each and every member will be like the apostles, that we would boldly proclaim the name of Jesus Christ that in our everyday conversations with people, that we would not shy away from the truth that you hold everlasting life and that it is a free gift that people can take. And Father, we are grateful that you are with us along the way, that you have promised, just like you did to the Israelites so many years ago, to never leave or forsake us, be with us to the very end of the age. We're thankful your spirit lives in us to give us the right words to say to people. And we're just thankful for the opportunity. I just want to pray, expecting that you will move and bring people to our lives And give us the right words to say to them. To help them know you. We love you, Lord. We come around the table to remember the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Becoming the curse for us. Taking our curse on himself. We take the emblems for communion. The bread representing his body, which is broken. Juice representing the blood that was spilled. And we take those, we, we do so in a, a manner worthy. But we remember the sacrifice that he made. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for that sacrifice. May we stand firm in the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.